This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Engage. Engage. Enterprise. Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Catherine Janeway. Captain Sisko. This is Captain Jonathan Archer. Red alert. Photon torpedoes. Fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. And to make sure history never forgets. This is Engage. Sailing frequencies open, sir. Oh, and we're back. Oh, Brian, play the theme song longer because it's nice. I like listening to it, uh, and it makes me think that what happened last week didn't really happen. Engage Pod listeners, last week we had uh, political pundit and humorist John DeVore on a few hours before the election, and we were joking about what would happen if Gold Ducat won. And uh, next time I know, don't joke, because it it's, uh, it's serious business. So listen, um, I don't want to be too down. We will survive, and uh, we're going to figure it out. We have a, a Donald Trump presidency. I guarantee you that nobody listening to this show voted for him. And if you did, I don't know, seek help. And um, that's the way it is. Now, luckily, though, our guest this week is the perfect person to talk. And I didn't plan it because my guest this week... Uh, it lives elsewhere in San Francisco, and I knew she was coming to town, and we, we booked a gig a long time ago. Yeah, months ago. Months ago. I said, you're coming to town? We're going to make this happen. But in addition to a zillion other credits that we're going to get to, <clears throat> Dr. Annalee Newitz. I'm going to call you Dr. Newitz, by yeah, the way. Hey, you know, if you have a cultural emergency, I'm there for you. <laughs> that, that's the kind of doctor I am. So just like, <laughs> let me know. In fact, we are having one. Yeah, so. we are. No, Dr. Newitz has done a zillion things in her illustrious career that we're going to talk about. But the title of her last book, that's where I'm going with this, uh-huh. is, and it's a fun title. I don't want to get it wrong. It's called, the full title is Scatter, Adapt, and Remember. How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. And this is a book published by... Doubleday. By Doubleday. So this was not like a blog post. You put a little bit of work into this. Yeah, yeah. So you have the answers. You know, what are we going to do? Because we are facing mass extinction when we put a lunatic in the White House. Scatter, adapt, and remember. What does that mean exactly? So the book was actually about... um you know, emergencies that are actually, if you can imagine, far more grave even than <laughs> than Donald Trump. Um, mostly about um, so the Earth in its you know several billion year history has gone through a couple of phases, um, five phases where um, over seventy five percent of all species on the planet died out. So that's a, a huge disaster. It's like bigger than Godzilla, mm. which is why I was so interested because I was like, what could be bigger than Godzilla? <laughs> um, 
And so, no, I mean, this is actually true. And like, um, Who could beat up Godzilla? You've yeah, been asking that question since you were a small child. Yeah, so, and so yeah. Um, these things are, are, are very real, and um, many, many scientists believe that we're at the beginning of a sixth mass extinction, where we're just at the very, very beginning, mm. and we're starting to see um, a huge uptick in uh, animal extinctions. So we need to start thinking about how we're going to deal with that. Right. Um, and so I, I do, in the book, have a lot of answers. Um, I have a bit of answer syndrome, in fact, um, and I talk to a lot of scientists and engineers about how do you prevent or not, you can't really prevent a mass extinction, but you can certainly mitigate the worst effects of how, it. Now, the, the extinction that, that some of these scientists are predicting, are these man-made or are these just like tough luck? Like, isn't there a thing somewhere like under um, Yellowstone Park, isn't there like a thing that's gurgling? There's a mega volcano, yeah. Right. And, and, in, and in fact, one of the worst mass, ex- mass extinctions in Earth history, it happened about 250 million years ago, was caused by a mega volcano. Mm. One that was actually even bigger than the one in Yellowstone. Yeah. Um, and so historically, I mean, the most famous mass extinction, of course, is the one that killed most of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago when a giant rock from space <laughs> like, smashed into the Gulf of Mexico. Oof. Um, this so that is was a City Alpha one. Five. Yeah, exactly. So that was that was a, a big one, although not as big as the mega volcano one that happened before. Um, but the one that we're going through now is mostly human made, and ah, okay. the reason why is all of those previous mass extinctions. Um, were essentially caused by climate change. Usually what would happen is a big disaster would occur, like a giant rock from right, space right, right. Okay. or a volcano, um, changing the environment, changing the atmosphere, changing the weather. And um, But this time, humans, um, b- with our crafty nature, uh, we had this industrial revolution, which seemed like such a good idea at the I, time. I was so into it. Toaster's rule. I know. So you, have to- you have bread, you want toast, bada bing. Assembly a and a half lines later. are yeah. good, especially after unionization. And um, so it seemed super great. We didn't know what we were doing. You yeah. know, we just didn't know. And um, the end result was we loaded so much carbon in the atmosphere that we actually changed the course of the planet's climate. We scientists call it perturbing the carbon cycle, mm. which sounds like, oh, you just kind of Give poked it, a, it. Flicked it behind the ears. Flicked it. And and indeed we did. We flicked it. And but a little perturbation can lead to really big changes um, because a lot of animals on the planet really need a certain kind of temperature, right? Right. So um, so in fact, this brings us back to Trump because of course he's going to be rolling back any kind of decent climate policies that we've been kind of slowly inching toward. Right. Um, and so, you know, I mean this is the time when, you know, science nerds like me are are concerned, right? Like, there's a lot yeah. of weird crap that's happening, but, um, you know, one thing that we we need to think about is that, yeah, we could be looking at the end of the world as we know it. And the scary part is, and I talk about this in my book, humans will survive. Like, if there's a mass extinction, like, we will be one of the animal species that makes right, it. Right, right. That's it's what makes suck. that's what that's what makes the movie The Road. The movie, the book, the movie, The Road. I didn't read the book. I saw the movie. So um, rough is because it's like, oh, there's the end of the world. But nah, there's still that dude and his kid wandering around looking for old cans of Alpo to eat. Yeah. And uh, one one so good for them. So uh, I often think about this in the context of the Star Trek timeline where yeah. sort of humanity has to go through this phase of complete collapse. Right. And. Um, I mean, in Trek, it's kind of a nuclear apocalypse. Right, right. Um, but that ends up, I mean, a nuclear poly- uh, apocalypse is an environmental apocalypse. Like, that's what happens is right. you screw nuclear, up the environment. Nuclear winter, right? Yeah, that's the you get nuclear winter, you get 
um, you know, radioactive regions. Um, sure. So, you know, basically what you do is you, you, sure, you blow up a bunch of people, but then after you've blown them up, you li- have to live in For, this Before a phoenix may rise, there must first be ash. Um, and that's, yeah. you know, you, the, the canon of Star Trek never got into the nitty gritty of it and never showed it. But yeah, first contact. We see Which it. ends, you know, w- gloriously. Uh, you know, we do see, I mean, they're living in, you know, what looks like a nice summer camp, though. I mean, like, you know, they're just cooking beans over a, a, a fire, but it's not, like, too bad. It's a, it's a little bit Hunger Gamesy it's without a, the evil yeah, government. Yeah. It's, it's, James Cromwell still has whiskey to drink and old Roy Orbison tunes to listen to on the jukebox. <laughs> but, uh, yes, but in yeah. order to get to First Contact, you got to go through hell before you can get to heaven. To, to, to and it's also how next gen starts, right? We go back to that horrible fate. Q brings everybody back, right, to the horrible phase in human history, isn't? I mean, and we see this like creepy, oh, there is pseudo religious regime yeah, that's and, risen up, and, there's and like, all, there's that, that must be before the events in First Contact, like yes. it's like a hundred years before. Yeah, and there's also a. Um, well, there's also the episode um, of DS9 where he goes to the like internment camps in the cities. Yes, um, which yeah. is like set in the '90s. The Bell, the Bell riots. They're yeah, called, that's right? actually a kind of an amazing episode. Oh, and he it's, has great. To, it's great! It's I just rewatched that recently because I'm I'm kind of doing a Deep Space Nine. Um, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of things about Deep Space Nine right now. Yeah, and um, yeah, and it's and and actually Cisco winds up taking up the mantle of right. this he radical is, yeah because he, yeah. he they accidentally screw up the timeline <laughs> so. they screw up the timeline so he patches it up he's like i'll be the guy i'll yeah. be Der- Derek bell was that his name something it's bell Be-, it's, yeah because it's the bell the riots. riots yeah yeah and jedzia uh winds up like at like in in like space palo alto right and she's like wearing these cool suits and there's like these giant computer terminals uh-huh and it's uh, like a neo-victorian yeah. kind of world oh, yeah because she's wearing these fancy kind they're, of dresses they, and stuff that's one of the best things about star trek are the few times when they go to their past our future yeah you know it's so much fun so listen uh so that book uh, but in, in but you also get into and it's in the title scatter and adapt mm-hmm. and remember is how humanity will survive you say keep hope alive and some of the fundamental ways that'll happen is uh you predict in in by scattering and adapting basically yeah i mean that's the recipe for survival and and part of that idea the idea of scatter adapt and remember is um you know humans can live almost anywhere and we can adapt really well to those places. Yeah. No, we're so, too cold for me. I like it, you know. Yeah, but, but you can wear a coat, man. Like, if it's bad enough, you're, right. you're going to have to do it. Like, you're maybe right. you'll be in Canada or something like that. Yeah. And um, and then the, the important thing about remembering is really about storytelling. And, you know, how do we remember our past and use those memories to make a better future? And right. that kind of gets back to Star Trek a yeah. little bit. And that's not just for psychological reasons. That's for that's just for infrastructure reasons and just for, like, how... How do we build this thing? Well, I once heard a story about a guy who did this. and, and It's know. for all those reasons. So yeah. it is about keeping the scientific tradition alive and yeah. Yeah, remembering how to build really important things. Right. Um, but it's also about remembering um, you know, moments in history when things got really bad or really dark. Right. And how did people cope with that? You know, And I think... That's something that people are are wondering about a lot right now is like, what can I, what historical moments were like this one? How did Mm. that turn out? How can we make it not as bad? How can we try to, I don't know, change the timeline in a way that. History's always done that. Like, uh, you know, big, big, um, big earthquake in Portugal. They start building cities a new way and use grids. That's right. um, Middle Ages. uh, 
feudalism, they, they stopped teaching certain things. Luckily, uh, you know, over in the Muslim world, there were scribes writing things down and creating things like algebra. Yeah, and creating then, math and right. being super awesome and <laughs> right. scientific. Yeah. And then eventually got blended in in, 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 in Spain again. So, uh, you know. Uh, so anyway, so that, that's the name of your book. But just, just so our listeners know, uh, um, you are, your current gig is you are the... I am the tech edi- culture editor. Tech culture editor. The intersection of technology and culture uh-huh. at Ars Technica. At Ars Technica, and in rough was it two thousand eight when IO Nine was founded? That's right. Yeah, two thousand eight. So we were actually th- secretly started it in two thousand seven, but we launched it All in right. like January. Of I wasn't hip enough to see it in two thousand seven. But no, but it was two- no one saw it. We saw it. We were like, "Is this really going to happen?" And, and then <laughs> an audience of twelve. Yeah, exactly. it was uh, like Nick Denton was the only one reading it at that point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in two thousand eight, uh, the internet was changed forever. Really, with io9 the site that you founded which which was the blend of um science and technology and fun and culture and things like um the shirt you're wearing which is c3po and data making out yeah that's pretty much like the spirit of io9 we wanted we wanted to bring together you know really great reporting about science with really good um cultural analysis of of science fiction and celebration of science fiction because those things are should be together, right? Like science fiction is just the cultural and artistic branch of science. And, you know, or, and, or they're both branches of each other. And good luck finding a successful scientist who isn't inspired by science fiction. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, in the early days of uh, the space program and, you know, JPL, there was like a big, oh, guess, you know, there was like a secret. Oh, you know, when we were, we actually really liked the show Star Trek, you know, giggle giggle like that was like a thing now go there and find someone who would won't just say yes were it not for star trek i would not be in this seat they're all obsessed with it so yeah. uh it's true i yeah. was actually um I, I i do a lot of reporting nonfiction reporting on science and last summer i was out at an archaeological dig and i spent the week there and and so i kind of got to know the scientists and the students who were there and finally after they kind of trusted me after like three or so days they started talking about like Harry Potter with me and like right. how they love stories about the apocalypse and things like that because they're all excavating this lost city that was abandoned right. and they're like so you know also like what's going to happen when this happens to our world right. you know <laughs> and they're like what what yeah. can we do? what can you recommend <laughs> you know when i was a kid there was like a cartoon strip or a book that i, I wish i remember the name where it w- the gag was it's a zillion years from now and they've discovered the artifacts of what was then the 1980s mm-hmm. and so it, it was like they dig up like an old motel and they don't know what it is so like the scientists of the future they find a toilet seat and they wear it around their neck and they go look at the beautiful jewelry they wore at the time you mm-hmm. know so uh yeah you never know you never know what's gonna survive you i mean i feel know. like that's bill and ted too you know it's like yeah. this cheesy like kind of crappy band from the 90s <laughs> and in the future you know wild stallions are like the right. basis for their religion right. you know right. so <laughs> oh man well uh so so star trek has been with you forever i mean when you were uh, a kid right this was something that you were always into or did you come to it later was it so um so kind of both um when i, I was i was raised by two english teachers who did not have a television in the house oh yeah so um but we did watch a lot of movies and so when I was very little, I did see um, the very first Star Trek film, and I thought it was the 
coolest thing yeah. I've ever seen. I was like, oh, that V'ger thing. Wow, what an amazing twist. <laughs> I was the perfect age to just be like, mind right. blown. Great. Um, Great. And I don't know if adults seeing the film probably responded to it quite the same way, but I thought it was the smartest science fiction I'd ever seen at that time, which is, you know, I was like probably watching Space 1999 right. at the time. So it was not, it didn't have a lot to compete with, but... Um, but yeah, and then and then um, when I went to college and I was in a PhD program, getting my <laughs> getting that doctor in front of my name, um, I had been studying um, medieval poetry as you do. Yeah. Um, and a friend of mine introduced me to Star Trek: The Next Generation, and I was like, Oh, okay. You know what? Within like few months I had completely changed the course of my studies and I wound up studying science fiction and contemporary American wow. pop culture. It really that did. That friend change. really put a. A very important. He changed cha- the timeline. <laughs> changed the timeline. Really? Do you keep yeah. in touch with this person? Um, I did for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. and we we worked together a lot. And so, um, yeah, it was it was um, you know, uh, there's well, I could spend a million years talking about like how medieval poetry actually fits into Star Trek, but I won't because that's... well, Gilgamesh certainly does, certainly is Gilgamesh is not medieval though. That's that's a zillion years earlier. Um, yeah, Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is, is quite pre pre yeah. BC. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but um. <laughs> There's Beowulf, which is in Old English. Does Beowulf fit in? Beowulf is pretty badass. But Beowulf is certainly badass, but I'm trying to think what are the obvious... Well, the Klingons. The, ma- the, I think- the dr- mead halls drinking, right? And they, the yeah. sword of Kalis, and I believe it was a, 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 a hunting was the name of the sword, right? Yeah. No, so- I think there's a lot of parallels between kind of that, you know, um, medieval sort of Anglo-Saxon yeah. culture. But also just the fact that in the Middle Ages, um, you know, in the West... Uh, people were sharing kind of serialized stories. There was an oral tradition. Yeah. There were put thing, people were writing things down, but that was kind of a new technology, right. writing things down. Um, and there was just a lot of fantasy stories and a lot of stories about other worlds and superheroes. Sure. And, you know, it was kind of a crappy time. Like, you know, life on Earth was not super great. Um, and so you get pe- the sniffles, you're probably going to drop dead two weeks later. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's not super awesome. And so I think that people use stories to kind of express how they hoped the future would be better yeah. or how life could be better. And so, and pop culture at the time was like, that was culture. You know, you didn't really have right. like great literature. No, you, you did. Had these you myths. had a little you bit. You had the myths and you, you had, had myths. Yeah. You had, you had pop culture, you had hero stories about yeah. like slaying monsters. And I mean, there were people who read Latin and could read great Roman literature. <laughs> right. Um, but that wasn't your average person. No, and no. so, um, so it, it actually weirdly made sense that I, that I made that transition and, and thank goodness because Star Trek is like now just, it's part of my, um, worldview. Like I said, when I look at a, an election like this, I'm like, well, maybe we're in the, the dark timeline, right. or maybe this is the part before yeah. the Vulcans come. You right, know? right. Guinan's going to come in and say, something's not right. Yeah. that's. I kept thinking about that. I kept th- saying, like, where is Guinan right now? <laughs> Captain, <laughs> we're not in the right timeline. Right, this right. is not a ship of war. This is a ship of peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I my gag was like, Q, we get it. Like, bring us back to the timeline. We yeah, see seriously. the error of our ways. Yeah. Oh, man. I blame Q. Uh, hey, Brian. Hey, Jordan. You know, we're living in the future. We don't yet have the replicator like they did on Star Trek, but we've got the next best thing. We've got something called Hello Fresh. And Hello Fresh is a brilliant idea for people who are busy who are on the go, uh, but want to have great meals at home. 
and want to cook them, but don't necessarily have the time to do all the shopping and finding the perfect ingredients for the very specific recipe that you want to make. And HelloFresh does it for you. Now, what's what what's great about it is um, it's all fresh ingredients. These are healthy but delicious recipes. It comes with a step-by-step guide, and it only takes 30 minutes to do. And I know this because I did it. They sent me some HelloFresh in the mail, and I made, I made, all right, my wife made, um, uh, it was like a stuffed pepper with a quinoa and a, a ground beef thingamajig, and it was very tasty, but here was what I thought was brilliant. Uh, the recipe called for scallions, right? And if you go to the store, if, you, if you're doing a recipe and like, oh, I gotta buy scallions, and you go to the store... You buy a, a, a wad of scallions with like 86 scallions in it, and then you use two of them, and then you put the scallions in the fridge, and then you have 84 scallions that rot, and then you throw away. Same with radishes and other things, you know, nothing against scallions, but you don't use them that much. With the HelloFresh, they give you two scallions, two small, thin scallions, the perfect amount for one meal. And uh, you chop it up, you follow the directions, you make it, bada bing, bada boom, you have a great meal, which was not, uh, you know, it was filling, but it was good for you. And that is what's happening at HelloFresh. They'll send you all the ingredients and you make it yourself. So it's somewhere between shopping for yourself and cooking for yourself and takeout. It's a nice third way. And you can check it out by going to HelloFresh.com and um, you can use a special code because you're listening to me. So if you go to HelloFresh.com and use promo code ENGAGE, you'll get $35 off your first week of deliveries. You visit HelloFresh.com, enter ENGAGE, and you subscribe and you're in business. HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, Engage. the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. So if there was a Star Trek character, or of the Star Trek characters, who's the one that you think that you are? Who's We're, the one that's most for you? So um, I am very um, machine identified, like any right thinking person yeah, would be. Yeah. So I'm very data identified. And yeah. I also am very holographic doctor identified. Like, I feel like I understand their struggles to figure out what the heck humans yeah. the, are doing. The doctor is awesome. I don't see you as data. Because you're, you're a lot of a lot of fun. I've known you for a while. You're a lot Data's of fun. Data's a lot of fun. Remember uh, when he learned comedy? Oh, God, do I? <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you. He, I'm going to tell you. He had a lot of affection for his cat. He had some funny cat jokes. True. I'm going to tell you, as someone who mostly knows you online and only sees you once every three years because you live on another, in another, another time planet, zone. Another basically. planet, Yeah. The planet known as California. And take this the right way. I mean this as a compliment. You are season seven Wesley Crusher, who comes back from hanging out with the Traveler, you have now matured into an interdimensional mm-hmm. being of great... I'll take but, it. But, oh, yeah. But, interdimensional, for sure. But also in touch with machines, right? That's what the mm-hmm. Traveler said, is that you are the Mozart with technology, mm-hmm. but still human, not Data. Well, I mean, that's the thing that's interesting about Data is... Is he not really human? I mean, he's human equivalent. I mean, if you prick him, does he not leak? Um, but also, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
his his quest to understand humans and yeah. his quest to understand himself are very human. And he's also very young. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we don't appreciate yeah, that's a really good point. about him is that, like, maybe once he's 40, he's going to finally be, like, an interdimensional badass who's, like, getting laid all the time or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, or having emotional, <laughs> I shouldn't say getting laid, <laughs> having deep, important emotional relationships yeah, with people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I really, and I think that the holographic doctor has a similar kind of arc. You know, he kind of goes from being really just this generic blob to a, just a, a photons. Just yeah. a helper, yeah. And then becomes, you know, a creature with a personality with preferences but because with desires. they're both programmed to do that so they're tricking you yeah but this is the thing about being a biological entity yeah. like a human right we are also programmed we're heavily programmed we are programmed to want to survive right. and that's not something we can change i mean certainly there are exceptions to that rule there's yeah. people who do not want to survive and um but that's very unusual right. and um and that's know, why you have things like suicide attempts because they think they want to end their lives and then it doesn't at the last minute instinct kicks in or whatever it is yeah and it stops i mean i them. think it's i think it's better to sort of frame it as that's why even under like the most horrific circumstances people still try to survive even right. if it looks like there's nothing they can do and we see this in fiction all the time but yeah. it happens in real life you know the the building is burning and you throw yourself out the window because you want to live right, right and or you and, and it extends to other people, too. We want to help other people survive because there's that species instinct. And that's why people save strangers from, you know, from cars that have crashed. Right. And it's save. not just because they want the key to the city. No, it's just, I think it's, it's, an instinctual it's programming. Thing. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that we kind of sh- that we don't think about sharing with a machine like data because data has been right. programmed to want to survive. That's we, what makes him human. We don't want to think about programming in you know in us because we are we have, we have autonomy free will and we have free and will we, but i mean and there's and it lots explains of, the sex drive also right yeah, and especially f- in young people who in 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 the condition culture that we're in no 14 year old would want to care for a child mm-hmm. but certainly 14 year olds want to get it on and, and that's programming again yeah. like that's you know the chemistry in our bodies yeah. and and there's all kinds of other ways we get not me when too. i was 14 i just wanted to read comics i swear if mom is listening i was very you know <laughs> comics, yeah, same here the occasional like, charleston chew that's all i wanted back yeah then, ax- ax- absolutely like those science fiction novels i was reading were like <laughs> humans were having sex with aliens i was in it for the for the adventure okay <laughs> Um, thanks, John Barley, by the way. Um, and so, uh, and thanks, Rudy Rucker, um, for those books. Um, so, but I, I think that, like, you know, and, and, hu- and just like data is programmed with, you know, all kinds of knowledge and information. I mean, humans are programmed by going to school. They're programmed by what their parents teach them. And it's really hard to get out of that. And that's, like, why people go into therapy. Because they're like, oh, I can't stop doing this thing. You know, like, I can't... Ki- can't stop marrying my mom or I can't stop like you know doing this compulsive thing right. and, and it's because that's I'm conditioned that's, to think a certain way and it's because of the institutions we've been raised and that's yeah. why when we see people from and as we globalize it's less and less but from very different cultures than our own and they have a different value system it's like those people are nuts right like how can they do that you mm-hmm. know and it's like well you grow up in that environment and see what you do yeah exactly nature versus nurture and that's what's fun about watching um, Data's transformations in yeah. different episodes where we see him get new programming and how that changes his whole identity in the same way that if a person gets exposed to new ideas, yeah. um, like when I was exposed to Star Trek and I was like, yeah. oh, I have to change my life, by the way. <laughs> um, I mean, at least change the course of my studies in grad school, which maybe doesn't seem like that much of a change, but at the time it was really important. Um, and I, I mean, because like 
Data gets like emotion boosts. Yeah. He gets um, dreams, which like I was trying to remember there what happens a- with the dream. Does he get dreams and then get rid of them or he, we just. Uh, is he able to tamp them down afterwards? Uh, he didn't continue to have dreams. Did I, so he decide it, to remove dreams? Because he has, he has that weird dr- dream about Troy being a cake or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. This, and he's like, I was a lot of walking through hallways with eerie music in yeah. that episode. Yeah. Um, well, th- those were the days when things got resolved at the end of the episode. Right, so, so he's it, no longer dreaming. It got resolved. I mean, and even his first use of the emotion ship, it got resolved, and then he said, we're going to put that emotion ship away. Mm-hmm. They bring it back later in one of the films, but uh, yeah. it, it got resolved. It's interesting that I feel like anytime he does get emotion, it's really dark. Like, he doesn't, um, it's like he gets rage, or he, I mean, yeah. in the film, which is such a terrible film, but, yeah. you know, he gets, um, the more he is like a human with emotions and then like the Borg queen gives him like a little swatch of skin. Oh no, that's the worst. Like you wouldn't want a swatch of skin. And she touches it and he just gets like really sadistic looking, this look of glee in his eyes. Um, Well, you know, it's it's something you said a minute ago is something I never really thought about. We we don't know the, what part of what makes, part of what makes me buy into data as quote unquote alive. Um, what was two things? Number one, the episode "Measure of a Man," obviously, mm-hmm. which is which one is of the such best. A, yeah, magnificent and 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 Patrick episode. Stewart nails it. It's some of the best television acting you'll see. And great writing. It's it's just dynamite. But before that, um, and it was really smart. Was that his origins are forever a little bit mercurial? We don't know what was in the sauce that Doctor Sung was mm-hmm. cooking. The with. positronic brain, right? Uh, even Jordy can't figure it out. The mm-hmm. only one who knows. And this is maybe a storytelling cheat, is Dr. Sung, who is a weirdo, and he's off screen. Mm-hmm. And he creates data and lore and then and, and the other one, B4, which doesn't count. And um, no one could replicate it. You can't make another data. So it's magic, right? Mm-hmm. And it has the spark of life. And when I was a kid and I was, you know, whenever you, you want to cross your arms, you're like, ah, that's dumb. I was always go. I always bought it. Because I could, I could explain it to myself. It's like it's not a robot. It's a doctor. It's a Sung android, mm-hmm. and Sung androids come from some other place. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe like the mobile emitter that got Bob Picardo out of that one set was technology from what the seventeenth, the seventy fifth right. century That's or something. Right. Yeah, it's future, storytelling cheat, but tech. it's like okay, future tech came back, and now he can walk around. And all right, I'm gonna buy it. But that like, said, yeah. like, there's none of the cheats with. The, with the doctor. There's no. none of those cheats where like, oh, but he's a special doctor. I mean, he is special well, there, and then he's been running constantly. And so he his, his so he's able subroutines to learn. learn and there is some lip service. I, I don't remember exactly. Like, Harry Kim goes under the hood and is like, I've adapted his subroutines to do X, Y, Z. So he's but, like a really good Google algorithm. Right, but exactly. But even with that, that's still not Sung Android because anybody could do that with any. There's an, e, there's an EMH on all the ships at this point, right? Because yeah. you see that in First Contact. There's an mm-hmm. EMH. And shows we also up. see that there's all these other holograms who right. have been running and who are pissed. Like they're working in like a salt mine or whatever. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I love the idea that they'd be like, who can we have to work in this salt mine? How about some holographic doctors? Right, right. Who gets, who gets snarky sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Reminds Perfect me of the, workers. Reminds me of the Flintstones. Like all that, like it was the, the can opener that was like a penguin. And then it would always make like a, you know, a, you know, another day in paradise. And then like open up a can or something. There was always that. Uh, 
so yeah so the, the idea is like if you're harry kim and harry kim was never like a genius like like uh like geordie laforge he was just a guy who really it was a good starfleet officer who knew his way around computers mm-hmm. In theory, any given Harry Kim could take any EMH and turn him into the doctor. Mm-hmm. They just don't, which is annoying because why not? The doctor, well, and, doctor and rules. I mean, they, they are in some places that is happening. Like they aren't doing it on every ship, but they yeah. are doing it in that mine, which is why those doctors or those holograms all want to have a revolution right, based right. on <laughs> yeah. the doctor's um, communist manifesto um, that he writes. And uh so, I mean, that kind of undermines the theory about data, right? That he's so special because it if does. any hologram can become super badass, I mean, obviously it's a little bit further in the future yeah. and using future tech, but like well, it's it, it it does. And I'm going to be very honest to you, my friend, yes, and to honest. the listeners of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. The EMH, who I love, and Robert Picardo, who's one of my favorite of the Trek alums that I've met, and I think he's a brilliant actor. Yeah, and he's a sweetie. I, I always. There were times, I don't want to say always, there were times where I had to suspend my disbelief a little more What? than when it was just, you know, just Dana. Riker or oh, okay. a human or, uh, you know, Spock, mm-hmm. which I got when it was the EMH writing the opera Photons Be Free. Part of me was like, would he really do this? And I was like, no, the doctor rules. This episode's great. Seven of Nine is in it shut up and enjoy it mm-hmm. but um because i i it, it takes a little bit more of a leap than the sung android thing did i mean yes and condemn no me because if data you must. Just, no I, I i'm not condemning you i i will <clears throat> allow you to have freedom of thought <clears throat> um i will not reprogram you but Thank um you. Uh, but I mean, we have a lot of weird stuff like that with Data too, right? Like Data starts painting, and he dates a lady, and he right. learns to be a com. I mean, they do a lot of things like bo- that. He plays Bach perfectly on his cello yeah. or viola so we or whatever. So see him experimenting yeah. with artistic expression, and so I think it makes sense that the Doctor would exper- would experiment with political expression because oh, he's wow, on a good. ship yeah. that's full of very political issues. Opinionated people, a Maquis yeah. Federation yeah, that are he's still annoyed at each other a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I mean, their identities in many ways on that ship are defined by their political um, backgrounds and their political beliefs. And so I think it, you know, he's just written a, a, a he, it's doing a version of what Data did. And um, But actually, the fact that you brought up Seven of Nine, who, another great character. Really? She's great an interesting character. example of also asking about whether she's really human. You know, where, where do we draw that line? Because she's been so altered by technology. Yep. And yep. she doesn't like data. She doesn't seem to have emotions, really. She's been able to kind of remove them. More uh, like Spock, I think she's tamped them down so much. Right. Because she does have but memories as a data child. Data has but... an emotion chip that he's taken out. So how yeah. is that really different from tamping them down? You know, I guess it's different in that because they bubble he can be up. absolutely sure that they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> he can be absolutely sure that they're gone. Yeah. And also, like with Spock, and particularly the, the, the Quinto version of Spock, yeah. the emotions can come at an inconvenient moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not going to happen with Data with the chip out. Right. But, um, yeah, but so yeah. it's much, the mo- his emotions are much more kind of like, I absolutely choose when <coughs> I want to have them. Right. So, which would be, which ver- would be which so convenient. Very helpful. Oh, my God. <laughs> I would get so much done. I would get so much accomplished. Yeah, it would be amazing. Um, seven of nine though is is a great character really and jerry ryan is a great actress and it's one of life's um nuanced moments because put the producer's instinct to put seven nine in the show came from a place of sexism and darkness 
Yeah. <laughs> rate, ra- the need for ratings. It was, we don't, you know, Balana's not hot enough. Uh, and yeah, but Captain she was. Ja- she was. <laughs> um, but and so was Janeway. Like, so, they were all... It kidding me, Janeway. But it, wa- it, wa- it, wa- it, it was the producers thinking that. No, no, and, I know. And they needed a... And, yeah. And they got rid of... Ka- I, I kind of liked Kess also. I thought the characters yeah. of Kess was already... And there's... I wonder Kess if people... was a little cheesy, but I liked... <sighs> it didn't make sense. The Okampa thing just didn't make sense. Was she seven uh, years old? Was she six years old? And if... Was she... Were she and Neelix sleeping together? And I don't judge anybody, but if so, Neelix is sleeping with a, with a, an infant practically I mean it's a little well, weird sleeping with like a light filled being which I, right. actually happens like more often than you'd think on Star Trek <laughs> like, there's a lot of sleeping with light filled beings but we don't or, know like, if they I think they spaceships. just had a he was an avuncular character the the, the romance between Neelix and Cass was always very uh, uh, ambiguous for, for good cause but yeah uh, they the producers who had been and God uh, Catherine Mulgrew has talked about this ad nauseum uh, they were obsessed with her hair they were obsessed with do we make her less sexy more sexy mm-hmm. constantly tweaking the the formula and they introduced Jerry Ryan and Jerry Ryan is a con, you know by conventional standards a, a knockout an 11 out of a 10 she's tall she's blonde she's got everything in the right place and um, and at first those of us who are intellectual one are like oh give me a break who who needs this? But the character's cool because we love the Borg. So it's like, all right, well, let's, mm-hmm. let's give it a chance. And then Jerry Ryan is really good. She is very, very funny. The character of Seven of Nine, there's a lot of shtick in there, as with Spock, as mm-hmm. with, um, uh, you know, m- you know, there's a lot of thrown away lines in that ridiculous voice. Mm-hmm. The bits with her and little Naomi Wildman, they're a scream. Naomi Wildman. You know, yeah. blah, 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 blah. She, she just owned it. You yeah, know, she took a terrific. character that was supposed to be, like you said, just sort of like a space pinup yeah. and turned it into a character that we cared about yeah. and who w- had dignity. Like that was the great thing is like it's really hard to wear like the sparkly black cat suit and yes. just look dignified and she <laughs> right. did she yeah. carried it off and i yeah. think you know again credit to her she's yeah. definitely working against what the producers wanted from her and well I, I i would i i mean i think the producers got lightning in a bottle you know they probably said oh it's gonna work and someone like, well maybe mm-hmm. and yeah especially you know and she when you say work like she was you know the original suit they put her in. She passed out a few times. It was so tight. Yeah, they had to change it, and um, you know it was very difficult. I mean, it was hard. You and know, she's wearing those incredibly high heels. Yeah. which are, don't make sense for a robot. I mean, no, you know. well, the whole thing doesn't make sense. But they explained it in such a silly way. It was she need all right. The stuff on her face, I get. Those are implants, yeah. and she can't and they get can't rid take of them. Them out, yeah. And then originally the doctor's like, I've given her this suit. And it needs to form against her skin because her skin is still healing. Because remember, at the end of the episode Scorpion, she's all like, she looks like mm-hmm. a half of a zombie. And so the the uh, polymers and isotopes in the, in the spandex uh-huh. are what's healing her. Uh, it just ha- no, I had that's, totally it, forgotten that detail. I love that they like, b- gave us a Believe me, I remember little... every aspect of the spandex. No, no, no. And <laughs> I, but I mean, I love that they were like, well, we need an excuse no. for this. Like, at least they like yeah. felt that they needed one instead right, of right. just being like, oh, well, of course yeah. she's going to wear that. Like, I, I that's like, what all Borg ladies right, want right, to wear. Right. You know? <laughs> I'd like to back up. And when I keep saying the producers, I mean the big bad people at the network i don't mean the awesome star trek producers who were great and brilliant i mean this was a this was probably you know a a fight between uh, you know 
money hungry bean counters and uh, you know people like and you know one of the big producers on on voyager was I think gene roddenberry was down with the idea of her being like he was know, dead already had, at this point you know like but he he had hired i mean gene yeah. roddenberry had hired women just to be like hey they gene, look kind of good gene roddenberry was a, a not wo- that he wasn't awesome no, he like was he gave wo- us star trek he, he but was he had wonderf- his foibles <laughs> he was a wonderful man who when the sexual revolution in the 1960s happened really used that to his advantage <laughs> you know so but let me ask you so 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 we talk about Data and um, the Doctor and, and also Seven of Nine, although she began her life as a human. Um, you know, AI and the singularity, movies like Ex, Ex Machina, Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Westworld now. Westworld now, which is... Um, so this is a recurring theme in sci-fi and a recurring theme, theme in your writing. On, on a, or, or just on a very entry-level thing... Is this possible? Do you think the singularity of passing the Turing test of uh, Alton, of AI being indistingu- indistinguishable from humans is something that we'll see? I think it really depends on how we end up defining what it means to be human and what it means to be intelligent. I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I just I have a novel coming out next year, which is about um, partly about a robot who is trying to uh, get human equivalent rights and. Um, and I, the thing is, is that right now, um, in Silicon Valley, where people are trying to develop AIs, um, you know, we have a really narrow definition of what is intelligent. Um, mm-hmm. It means basically being able to take a bunch of data, you know, and kind of look through it meaningfully and produce some kind of answer, you know, based on. I mean, basically, it's like a Google search with a little bit more functionality. Um, maybe a Google search that can anticipate what you want. Um, and human intelligence is so much more complicated than that. Um, you know, we have a lot of um, part of what makes us human is some of what we were talking about before with the programming. The fact yeah. that we actually our brains don't really work that well. Like, um, you know, we make a lot of mistakes. We uh, misunderstand things. We misrecognize things. And those mistakes and misrecognitions can actually lead to creativity and, mm. and great insight. And um, and so I think that when, you know, if you say, like, well, will we have AI that you can't tell from a human? I mean, we kind of already have that now. I mean, I've had conversations with bots where I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I could imagine that being a person, mm. um, you know, because sometimes you have a conversation it's with a person. It's not face to face. This is through a chat window or something. Yeah, through a chat yeah. window. Um, and, you know, you certain kinds of interactions we have with people are pretty mechanical. You know, like if you're having a service interaction with somebody and you're like, hello, I would like to buy a ticket. And they say, well, here's how much the ticket will cost. You know, that a robot can do that Mm -hmm. and they could do it just as well as a human. And you wouldn't know the difference unless you, you know, saw under their skin and saw their, their carbon (laughs) alloy (laughs) endoskeleton. Um, And so, uh, you know, yes, we're going to have stuff like that, like really soon, if not now. You know, thing, you know, interacting with um, bots online who really sound and act like service workers and sound like people. You know, will we have a human equivalent robot or AI that has desires and dreams yeah. and um, you know feels like uh, you know the creature in the movie Her, for example, who mm. obviously does have a really complex emotional life and philosophical beliefs and things like that. Um, you know, maybe I don't think we're n- close to that yet. And I think the reason we're 
so far from it is partly just because we still don't don't understand how human consciousness mm. works. We're still stuck on not we just don't get it. You know, we don't get ourselves very well. And so huh. we keep striving to create what some people call super intelligence. You know, artificial super intelligence is a buzzword among um, AI nerds. And again, what does that mean? Super intelligence means having like a super great memory, being able to crunch data, mm. being able to do, um, you know, predictions based on massive amounts of data. But that's just a tiny, tiny piece of. of and what also, it means to, to what end? Human. I mean, like they, they've figured out how a computer can beat anybody at chess. Mm-hmm. But what what are the practical applications of the super intelligence that anybody would want in the real world? Like, what is the what is First, what are the market demands? And then also, what are our human demands? Like, why why would we ever want that in the world? I, I mean, mean, I think we would want it because it could give us a tremendous advantage in financial markets. Um, it could give us an advantage in intelligence gathering or um, in war. Right, right. Um, you know, you and also... None of this sounds like agents of good. All of these sound say, a little nefarious. Also, one of the fantastic things we can do with algorithms is look at, um, you know, environmental data, for example. Like one of the er- so sure you have these, you know, areas like financial data. We can predict markets, but we can also do things like maybe predict climate and predict weather. Mm. Oh, okay. And if we can gather enough data, it's complicated. Like weather is so complicated, and there's so much data you have to get in order to even know, like, is it going to rain in three days? Like we just can't even, you know, yeah. we can't really predict. You would think stuff. by now we would know. If we can have yeah. computers that can beat any, any Russian at chess, then um, you would think we would know if it was going to rain. But and it's, we could. We could it's theoretically. The, the marble spinning so fast. There's so many different It's such. It's a very, yeah, happening. it's very chaotic. Um, so many different, there's so many different inputs into the system. You know, everything from like temperature to particles in the atmosphere to what's happening on the ground. And so we could have AIs that would do things like predict even um, you know, predict weather, predict climate changes, predict maybe even social changes. Um, you know, maybe there's mm. certainly people who believe that we could maybe have predicted uh, even better um, that this political situation we're in in the states, right? Uh, right which right. we kind of did. I mean, hey, I, I knew it. I'm go go I back mean, and read my tweets. I predicted it. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend who's been predicting for like 500 days. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> I know that guy. Uh, what's <laughs> yeah. his name? Um, Matt Novak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Paleo future. You would be friends. A with lovely, him. Oh, a lovely fellow. But is I he blame San Francisco him. also? He's in LA. He's in LA. So That's practical. That's where San you can Francisco. find him if you want to blame yeah. him for what happened. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think um, so. I think there are great applications, but again, just to to go back to that question of what is intelligence, like, is it? Do we have a real human equivalent intelligence if we have an algorithm that's just really good at processing data and making predictive models? Eh, I don't know. I mean, yeah. humans aren't really good at doing that, so that's right. not a human well, equivalent that, maybe, intelligence. Maybe that's why we won't have true. You know, we won't achieve the singularity because when we do, I listen to this, this is going to knock your socks off. <laughs> when we create the robot, like an ex machina, it'll be too perfect. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like when you, when you, when uh, it's like making uh, mashed potatoes with no lumps, people don't like it. Not the way grandma made it. Uh, a true human or a true whatever the hell we are, mm-hmm. um, the imperfections and the fact that we are totally, uh, you know, a mess. Is what makes us a lot, makes us uh, yeah. quote unquote real. I mean, my feeling is, um, and and as a science fiction writer, this yeah. is something I I've played with a lot. Is that if we really do create human equivalent intelligence, 
these robots are going to be just as neurotic and screwed up as we are. You know, they might be able to. Douglas Adams, you know, Marvin the Paranoid Exactly. You know, they're going to have. And I mean, this is actually like people forget, like this is the basis for iRobot. Isaac Asimov's original yeah. set of short stories is the main character. The frame story is a robo psychologist. And that and the reason why she's needed is because these robots keep becoming neurotic, paranoid, yeah. schizophrenic, um, authoritarian. Like there's all these failure modes that the robots get into because they've been programmed to have ethics and to have all these things that humans have. And so I think that's the real future of AI is that we're just going to create a bunch of like really good, like humans who are really good at crunching data and also still have like daddy issues or whatever. And and this will lead to the robot uprising because humans uh, have yet to find a way to rebel against their creator right mm-hmm. we don't exactly know what brought us here and then there's certainly a lot of uh there are certainly a lot of different religions that will tell you their version of the answer and uh religion is often led to war and 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 all that when robots get pissed off at the fact that things are imperfect and they want to rage they'll know exactly which laboratory in Silicon Valley to go to. That's like the Battlestar Galactica scenario. It really yeah. is. Well, that's it, why I keep saying, like, if we're going to build AI, don't make it a slave. Because if you want to have AI friends, like, right. the worst way to make a friend is to enslave them. That's just the worst way to do it. That's a really good point. So what do we use them for? Friends. They can be we friends, have enough friends and we colleagues. Got, we have people. No, but don't you want an AI friend? I mean, like, if, look, little BB-8 it, is adorable. I certainly want him or her, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, maybe we don't need super AI, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, I keep coming back to Ex Machina, which I think was a great movie. Yeah, it's um, really interesting. What's so great about it is there's a scene when um, uh, Oscar Isaac's character and Dom Hanal, I have so many letters in my name, Gleason, are sitting, like, on the pond, and, the, and Dom Hanal's like, why, why are you doing this? And Oscar Isaac's like, Despondent. He's like, oh, it's, it has to be done. It's a historic inevitability. Somebody's going to do it. I know how to do it. Eh, it might as well be me. And I found that to be really remarkable because, uh, A, it's not what you think. You think he's going to be like Dr. Frankenstein screaming, give my creature life. Uh, but um, even though the results are the same. But it, it's it's almost, it's not. He's, he's, he's kind of upset. And it's interesting because if you think about Ex Machina as a theological film, which I think was part of the intent, and if Oscar Isaac represents God as in sort of the most generic of terms, and if he is God creating new life, God being a little bit ambivalent about it, knowing that it's going to be a bit of a disaster is, I think, a really cool idea. (laughs) But also there's this kind of like dark cynicism to it as well, because Again, what he says in that scene is almost a direct quote from a lot of these AI true believers in Silicon Valley. Oh, really? Where they say, oh. AI is inevitable in the next century. Um, there's a book about superintelligence by Nick Bostrom, um, who's kind of one of the prominent pundits in this area. And he he's like, look, it's going to happen in the next hundred years. We need the people. So we have to do it. Because, um, you know, we need to make ethical AI. We need to make AI that won't kill us and that won't Mm. kind of take over the world. So we have to, we as good people, I guess, um, have to race to do it before some bad guy does it. 
And well, that's Star Trek TOS. We we got to get here before the Klingons do. Come, right. Join the Federation because those guys are jerks, but we're kind of nice. Yeah, we're semi-nice. Right, right. Um, and so that idea that it's a historical inevitability, I mean, I don't think that's true. I mean, there's no such thing as a historical inevitability. No. Tell it um, to Marx. Yeah, know? exactly. It's, huh. It doesn't always work out the way you plan. And then... Um, and so, it, it, like I said, it does become a kind of cynicism because it's like, oh, I didn't do this because I wanted a friend or because I wanted a colleague. Right. I, just, cause I did it because it had to be done. And what we see in Ex Machina and also in Westworld, actually, is that the real reason they built them was because they wanted to rape and kill. And yeah. they're using this as yeah. an excuse, right? They're like, oh, well, it was bound to happen. Right. So, and and just, she's there and anyway. Just, it's just a lucky side effect that I get to brutalize them and use right. them as my toys. Um, and I mean, maybe we should flip that around and think about like how we're using this idea of inevitability as an excuse to bring new life into the world that we can abuse and enslave. Well, Not that, to get too dark. No, on you. no, that was my <laughs> next question because uh, you've been you've been writing about Westworld on Ars Technica for for since the beginning. I'm and doing a podcast about it. I'm one week behind, and by the time okay, this airs, I won't I'll give be, you spoilers. Eh, yeah, no, I know. I, the spoiler is that Harris kills more people. I know, but um, <laughs> and I'm by the time this airs, we'll we'll be two weeks behind. But um, on a very basic la- level, is it immoral? See, well, here's the thing about Westworld: we don't really yet know what these um, things are. We don't know if they're human in some way because they do bleed, they have flesh. We don't know. But let's say let's take a data esque android mm-hmm. or a hologram. Mm-hmm. Is it immoral to enact whatever dark fantasies you have against a hologram or an android that looks real enough to you that you can play pretend? It's, I mean, I think in the case of Star Trek with um, Data, uh, I think Measure of a Man is very clear on that. It is immoral. Like, Data is a human equivalent being. You cannot... um, choose to call him whatever you want right you can't choose to use him however, however you want he is free right um, to the extent that you can ever be free right uh, and I think that with the holographic doctor that's clearly also kind of the trajectory of his character is that I mean that's why he writes his communist right. photons be free because <laughs> right. he's saying look like this is immoral like I can't just be turned off I can't just be used um, anymore because I am a human being or a human equivalent being um, so I think yeah, I think, you know, it's clear in shows like uh, Westworld or in Ex Machina, again, it's a pretty dark and dystopian way of yeah. making that same point and saying, yes, this is immoral. One of the things that I think is so interesting about Westworld is that um, it really is about how storytelling itself and acting out fantasies mm. can still hurt people. And, um, you know, it kind of, it's it's interesting because we have a lot of, uh, cultural debates right now about whether certain stories just shouldn't be told because they're mm. so triggering or because right. they're so yeah. terrifying to certain people um, or because they're racist or sexist or whatever. Um, and I think Westworld is essentially saying, actually, yeah, like certain stories like the Western, which is a, the, the traditional Western, is sure. this really violent oh, yeah. kind of colonial story um, that retelling it is harming people. I mean, it's Not literally just the harming. Host, it's harming the guests. It's harming the guests. Yeah. It's um, it's programming people to see other people as property. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you believe what I was saying earlier about how humans can actually be kind of programmed by their environments or mm-hmm. programmed by 
um, you know, entertainment or whatever. Um, going to Westworld is a way of learning that um, you know it's okay to like abuse yeah. a, a human equivalent being because we know for sure that the robots in that show are human equivalent. Well, we see them. Okay, but that's the show. So I'm, I mean, let's say, let's say there was a Westworld that wasn't. Let's see. Let's pretend the Westworld we see on the show is West Point, Westworld 7.0. So Westworld 1.0, where the robots talk like this, maybe, <laughs> yeah. and like you know, the actually skin- like similar to the first film, where the sure. where it's not clear. Yeah, uh, would that be a little bit better? Like. I forget like why anybody would want to do this. You yeah. know, like no, you have, yeah, you have the right. Question. You have the right to go and shoot a deer if you want. If you get a license, should you? Uh, I don't know. You know, yeah, it's a question. I don't know. But w- is it less? W- the question is when? When does the um, the switch get turned? It's such a gray area because yeah. I will defend to the death people's right to play violent video games, and like right. people get upset. Like Grand Theft Auto is oh so terrible. I'm like, it hey. Is. It's just a game. Like people are. No, just, you're a horrible person. Yeah, I, I am a horrible person <laughs> in many, many ways. Um, but I, and I love like violent movies. I, yeah. I really like um, right. gory movies. Yeah. Like David Cronenberg is totally my spirit animal. Yeah. But like I, I think there is there is definitely um, a spectrum where yeah. you know a video game clearly there's no AI being harmed in you know Grand Theft Auto. And then let's again like bracket the question of what it does to you as a person or what it says about yeah. me that I want to yeah, shoot aside. people right. in a video game. Um, but then I think as we get closer to having something like a human equivalent artificial intelligence or yeah. human equivalent robots, um, you do see this kind of big gray area. And I think a movie like Ex Machina or a movie like the original Westworld where yeah. the robots, it's like, are they conscious? We don't really know. We don't really know. That's in that really creepy gray area yeah. where like we're having to re- we're having to accept oh, it's not like a video game anymore. Actually, we have to start thinking about Well, that's what's so interesting about Westworld is that it does uh, use tropes from video games, right? Absolutely. The the loops. And the producers have said, like, they played video games to figure out how to make the series work. And it is like, um, I don't play too much Grand Theft Auto, not because I find it immoral, just because I don't, the controller, I never know how to, (laughs) I'm I'm not very good at video games. Bit of a klutz. But from what I know is... uh, you know, if you want to go into into the world and just break windows and rape people, and you know that's that's very allowable, and that's what Westworld is. So, yeah. where is the moment? Where is the if the stop sign is here, then there are a lot of people who who make it their life's work to say my job as a human being is to push the boundaries and and go forward. And then when people tell me that's immoral, I say you're a fool. You know, and that's mm-hmm. that's. Something that's going to happen, I guess. You know? Yeah, and I think... I, I mean, with video games, I mean, I've played with VR, and I've seen... This, I'm not just... I have not... But there are... Uh, there's pornography VR, and there's pornography VR with with with, with sex toys and sex dolls. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Like, as a, I mean... Yeah, I have. And I, I mean, I really want some porn VR with, like, aliens and robots, frankly. like An orc. Can, can some people please provide that for me? <laughs> yeah, so, I want the World of Warcraft porn version. <laughs> that would have done even better business at the box office. So, uh, I mean, that that is, um, again, bracketing what that does to your brain and how that will affect your relationships in the real world. 
when does that become a yeah that is an ethical trans trans yeah. uh, uh, transgression? It's such a good question, yeah. and I want us to be asking that question. And I think that's the value of a show like Westworld is that it is it's sort of taking place in that moment where it where our entertainment goes from being a video game or a TV show, which is clearly no one is being harmed, yeah, uh, physically harmed, into um, you know a situation where. Those robots are being horribly harmed. They're being physically harmed. They're being psychologically damaged. And we watch it happening. And so I think in the world of Westworld, it's clearly immoral and clearly humans should have figured that out. Right, like that's right. part of the tr- the sadness and the and the melancholy of Westworld right. is that you know it's really clear that um, you know for example Ford who runs the park and he's kind of the god figure mm-hmm. uh, he knows that the yeah. robots are suffering. That's and why he's he, always drinking with that old timer. Right, and know? that's why he also is constantly trying to reassure himself. No, they're just machines, and trying to tell everyone else, you know. Stop treating them like people, right? And you know, it's like the denial is right. so and this is intense this because is a, it's among its many just denial, and also uh, one of its many things is it's it's a it's a commentary on slavery. You know, don't yeah. don't treat these as humans. They're and colonialism, and, and yeah. yeah, like because of course, I mean, one of the things that Westworld deals with is um, just sort of killing Indians, right? Nearly, and and it actually, <laughs> I've talked on the podcast, my podcast about Westworld about this a lot. There's you know, some some problems with how the show deals with that. But uh, yeah, I mean, and I think the question we have to ask is when does um, our when does our artificial intelligence or when do our robots become human equivalent enough that we have to start worrying that that this is slavery? Right, right. And, I, and you know, it, it and may be hard. There's going to be some moment in history never will. where like we, maybe the technology. Do you think that do you really think the technology will be there that, you know, like in Blade Runner? When you meet a Sean Young, that that you won't know and she won't know that she's a robot, like you know, I'm just talking about like the, the contours of yeah. the skin, you know, with the, the body temperature. I mean, the uh, we're talking about rape, the sex organs, you know, mm-hmm. are they are they going to be this? Like, we're gonna know. I guess, like, what I would say, you know, what I would say is that um, it kind of doesn't matter if they're perfectly human mm. because that's why I keep using the phrase human equivalent, um, mm. and this is sort of what. Um, uh, animal rights advocates used to prove that chimps should not be, um, you know, imprisoned and sure, <laughs> experimented yeah. on. Right? They were like, "Well, okay, chimps aren't human, but they're kind of human equivalent it's enough <laughs> that we, you know, that we want to just err on the side of ethics, right? Like, yeah. and that's really the question: is like, when do you want to err on the side of doing the ethical thing, even though you could make some kind of very rational argument that, of course, a chimp is not a human; it can't do higher math. Right? Uh, I can't do higher math, <laughs> um, and I still don't think I should be experimented on. Right. So. I think that, um, you know, maybe we have to think about the fact that AI or um, super intelligent robots, maybe they wouldn't be perfectly human, but they would still deserve human equivalent rights. That's 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 something that I really never thought about. Just like uh, aliens on Star Trek. Right. We they're not going to be like us, but we still want to have. You know, we still want them in the Federation. Right, you know? right, right, right. Um, I mean, and some of them are jerks, but like, yeah. like the Ferengis are kind of jerks. But mm-hmm. but if you if you you know, if you approach them the right way and in the right lighting, they're actually ethical to a degree. Yeah, they have a code. They have a code. Yeah. <laughs> their code is to screw you, mm-hmm. but their code is not to kill you. Their code is to is to squeeze you for your latinum and they will recognize... <laughs> 
that the the and like Dominion, be a good deal sometimes. No, you never get a good deal from. from I, I mean, I think if you negotiate enough, you know, you get a good deal. But the <laughs> point is that this is a, this is really about human ethics, right? Like, so our ethics as humans. Like, right. how, when do we extend? Um, you know, when do we extend personhood to another species or to another life form? And so, like I said, I would just always want to err on the side of ethics and err on the side of extending personhood because um, maybe a robot won't act just like a human, probably won't look like a human, uh, but it still isn't right to enslave it and force it to act out horrible moments in human history forever. And when do you act as someone who's good and moral and liberal and Western, when do you act to (laughs) protect that other being when maybe they're not asking to be protected. Yeah, that's and you another say, good question. And this is something that's very, uh, very much in the real world. You know, when do you say, oh, they don't want to be liberated. That's their culture. Mm-hmm. And you say, screw you. It's the year 2016. And you can't tell your wife she can't drive and she's got to wear, you know, a cloak over her head. And then you say that's culturally um, inappropriate for you to say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think issue. in those. Yeah, I mean, and I think. I mean, this gets back to our lovely kind of liberal pluralism, which I think Deep Space Nine actually often kind of de- deals with that a lot. Actually, oh, yeah. how do you how do you approach the Ferengi who force their women to be naked and right. like you know treat them like crap? Um, and you know, Nog has to kind of get a little feminist lesson, um, which is kind of weird. It's, it doesn't <laughs> turn out exactly as I would hope, but right. but I think I mean, it's what this is about is offering people choice. And so if a woman, for example, a Ferengi woman, if she's like, look, I'm cool with it. I, I don't mind having to sit around naked right. and like all I have to do all day is sew and make babies. Like, I think that's that is a legitimate choice. Right. That it, it, it's But it can only be a legitimate choice yeah. in an environment where it is a choice, where she has right. another option where she can be like, yeah, I'm going to be a badass Starfleet officer or I'm going to yeah. be a naked lady. making. That's babies. a really good point, because then, you know, you say you this you just and this is the most obnoxious thing. And, and you know, men do this all the time. You just think you want that, you know, right. <laughs> you you know, you you're brainwashed. Yeah. But, you know, you we said earlier, you people, you're conditioned by your environment. You know, I worked for for a couple of horrible years in my life after September 11th, when there was no work, I worked in sales. It was a nightmare. I'm the nicest, most jolly guy I was before I started. And then when you're in the environment where you're working in sales, and if you don't twist the arm of the poor sop who answered the phone to buy the piece of junk you're selling, mm-hmm. you are not going to be able to pay rent at the end of the month. Yeah, it's like you, Glenn Gary, Glenn you Ross. See, it was a little <laughs> bit rough, and it, it, I've, I've written about it. It's kind of funny. But um, you... Uh, you start to see every transaction. You start to see every relationship you have as a transaction. And um, I'm going to invest time talking to person to a person. What am I going to get out of it? Mm-hmm. Because those hours when you're on the phone making sales, if, if you're working Mrs. Jones and she's not buying it, I was in telephone sales, and you're like, I'm losing this customer. I got a list. I only have X amount of hours. I got to cut and run. And that warps with your head. And then... Um, you go out into uh, it's the weekend, and you're trying to have fun. You're trying to maximize your week of hours of fun, and if somebody's you know boring you, uh, you you you're just like you get annoyed and you get angry and you become a, what we like to call a jerk. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> yeah, this is like Westworld because um, 
the financial aspect of Westworld is great. Also, they're mm-hmm. all rich, but they're paying a lot of dough. So they want a million. I and don't the wa- park is hemorrhaging cash, too. So that's right. like one of the weird things. Yeah, 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 yeah. And But like the one guy, like there's a nice thing. They're camping, the brother-in-law and the guy. They're like, they're camping. They're cooking beans. They're smoking cigars. And uh, the blonde guy, who's the ni- nice one so mm-hmm. far, mm-hmm. is like, oh, I'm having fun. And the brunette, who's a bit of a jerk, is like, we're wasting time. We should be screwing and whoring and killing. What are we doing out here? So your environment will change things. So uh, that's why we need Star Trek. That's why we need the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Because that is really the Federation is a great environment for uplifting and... Uh, ethical and righteous living it is i mean it's a good um story to have in our minds when we're going through the real world and things seem wrong and um it's hard to imagine there could ever be justice and then you know it's so it's just it's helpful it's heartening to have that idea of no it could be different and not only could it be different but like here's how it would look if it were different and here's how people would act in a different world a better future and um, it really is true that I sometimes will think in a situation like, well, what would Picard do? I, just I really do. And I I, not, now it sounds silly. No, and I've had sure people is, make fun of me for it. But it's like, look, I mean. It sure as shit does not sound silly to me. Look, I was not raised in, in the Christian faith. As so what the, the phrase, what would Jesus do, is nice. And I, I get it. I get it. And Jesus is, Jesus is just all right with me, as the song goes. But I don't have a one-to-one relationship with the guy. Um, although I've seen some great movies that he's in. Um, <laughs> but I do know what Picard would do. And Picard uh, is not Jesus. He fights. He gets angry. He's flawed. Uh, he's he's flawed. Um, uh, but he makes the right choice. And uh, and he deliberates. Yeah. Like he may, sometimes he makes the wrong choice, but he always tries to think about the ethics, yeah. to think about the science to try to make a rational decision. And I've been thinking a lot um, recently about one episode where everything's gone sideways and everybody's freaking out and Wesley is just like losing his crap. And like, and Picard says, just do the work. It's like, just do the work. We're going to deal. You can cry later, basically, yeah. but just do the work. And I keep, that's just such a Star Trek sentiment, you know, like the, because the work that they're doing isn't just like pounding a nail or like programming a computer. It's right. like, Going out into space and exploring and forming relationships with other cultures and civilizations, and that's really important work. You know, that's what we should be aspiring to is yeah. having those kind of adventures that are also um, diplomatic and that are also. I keep coming back to the phrase "forging alliances." That it's all about trying to do that, and so just set aside this, the bad stuff, take out the emotion chip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm glad we had this conversation because it's a down uh, a down week. Uh, you and I are speaking now. We're, we're recording this a little early, so it's it's been um, like 36 hours yeah. since uh, Trump was elected. So we're still a little shell shocked. We're not happy, but we will persevere. We will fight uh, another day. Um, we'll learn from the mistakes of this election, hopefully. Um, we'll also think optimistically, like you know, the last thing I want to do is is ever admit that Trump does anything good because that's but I because I am a flawed individual. But you know, he's going to do ninety nine awful things, but maybe the one good thing will be good. I mean, maybe he you know Nixon did a few good things. Yeah, Nixon created the EPA. 
Yeah, and and open relations with China. Yeah, and uh, which is a Star Trek line. Only Nixon can go to China. Exactly. Uh, he also secretly bombed the shit out of Cambodia, but um, you know everybody's flawed. <laughs> but I think the other thing about about yeah. hope is that you know and Star Trek style hope is that hope is a really powerful tool for subversion. And let's say that Trump does a hundred things that are bad. Like maybe yeah. he only does bad things, um, or only things that we consider to be bad from our position. Uh, you know, but we still have hope that um, we can fight against it. We can criticize yeah. it. Hopefully, we'll still have a free press and we can talk about it. We'll have the ability to write science fiction stories and create science fiction stories that show a better world, that show how things could be more ethical, that we could have justice maybe one day. Yeah. And so I think we should just use that hope that, yeah. you know, the, we are in the majority. The majority of the country did not vote for Trump. Sure. No, no. <laughs> um, you know, a slim majority, a s- but the the fact is that yeah. it's it's not like, you know, we're in some we're huddled in some yeah. cave somewhere, you know? And it's going to be um it's going to be uh it's going to be the right time for this new Star Trek show also. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. I uh, you know, my 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 uh one of my favorite writers uh, who isn't in the room, a woman by the name of Stephanie Zaharik who writes for Time magazine wrote an amazing piece yesterday which you could easily find on the internet. Um it was really just her reacting to the news, but she her she's an arts critic, and she wrote about how artists will help us out of this, uh, citing ex- very specific examples, and um, that is the one bit of uh, one panacea that we have coming forward is that the the art is going to get even better. Yeah. So uh, we have that to look forward to. Um, Annalee, your work uh, can be read daily. Uh, you know, you're in the future, the uh, the internet, wherever you go, on all sorts of platforms. Uh-huh. Look phones, for me on Ars Technica. Ars Technica. One can follow you on Twitter at uh, Annalie N. That's right. Annalie N on Twitter. Give me how because you got a lot of L's and N's. A-N-N-A-L-E-E-N. So it's two N's, one L, two E's. It's a lot of letters. Yeah. It's very specific. Yeah. Some people spell it, you know, Hillary can be spelled with one L. I have a friend who's a Hillary with one L. I'm like, why are you only one L? She's like, what do I need with an extra L? I'm like, jeez, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you don't need them both. You well, know, Hillary one Clinton is just thought like, she needed a second know, L. It's just a luxury L, basically. A, <laughs> see, this is what it is. If she dropped the other L, the Rust Belt would have voted for her. Yeah. And like this, this, this Hillary Clinton. In the Clinton other timeline. With that extra L. The one L, L timeline. <laughs> the one L. That's how, like, Kal L. Kal L, one L timeline. I like that. So, Anna Lee N at Twitter uh, and. Um, your your new book is coming out. Uh, I have a book coming out uh, next fall, which is called Autonomous, which is about robots and pirates in the future. Oh my god, that's so great! You're gonna love it. I I <laughs> I have been a fan. Well, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time. Yeah, it's been. I don't remember where we met. Do I you? I feel like maybe we. Did we meet at Comic-Con? I mean, I think we knew each other before that. From the we internet, like, and we had a mutual friend, yeah. your, an IO9 worker in mm-hmm. uh, Worker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Someone who is a holographic IO9 One of IO9 your IO9 uh, employee at the time in New York, uh, Meredith. Meredith whom, Warner. Whom I, uh, who's I, amazing. I love, and now she lives in Los Angeles. She works for the yeah, LA Times. Now she, and it kills me, because I used to see her all the time here I know. She now was, she runs Hero Complex, so you yeah. can see her you work know, there. You know, IO9 still exists. IO9 lives. You, you left in... 2000. I left a year ago, almost exactly. Okay, you left it and it still exists, and there are great people working there. Yep. But that first, 
let's talk about the graduating class of the first iteration of io9 and where they are now because these are some amazing people that you nurtured really i mean they don't you know they nurtured themselves don't too. give me that. like no come give on. Me that. you gave them the platform you guided them please take some credit they're so all, they're all awesome meredith is at the los angeles times now mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie is um, writing. Charlie Jane Anders has a national bestseller out, which yes. is called All the Birds in the Sky, which is an amazing fantasy sci-fi right. novel. Which is which sell, I saw it at an airport. This yeah, is no, no joke of a book. This is a real um, bestseller, and it's fantastic. It's it's really um, if you're <laughs> if you're looking for a story about the singularity and how it can go wrong, that's a good. <laughs> Good choice. And some of the others from those early days? Um, so Syriac Lamar is yes. at um, Cracked. Right. Making and the internet making a better place. Making the internet better for sure. He's yeah. like, uh, he told me that basically what he does all day is talk on the phone and throw candy. So that's <laughs> good. <laughs> I don't know like quite how that all fit together, but but yeah. So yeah. there's candy throwing. And uh, George, right? Wasn't there George? Um, George Dvorsky yes. is still at io oh, he's still at io yeah, Okay, he's good. he's writing about futurism from the balmy shores of Canada. Right. Um, so he's still there. Um, trying to think who else I can report on. Um, this just in. All right, and others. Let's leave and it others at that. are yes. amazing. Yeah. and off doing cool stuff. So, um, you know, if if you're if you're a little younger and don't remember the birth of Ion, and it really did change the conversation in terms of the intersection of science and fun and sci-fi, exploiting. You know, the web was different back then. You didn't embed YouTube videos in your articles. What? Iron 9 was the first place I saw that happen. Really? It was. Okay. It, and it was, yeah, we invented that. I'm not saying you invented <laughs> it. It was the first place where I saw it and yeah. got jealous because I worked at the time for a, a very a different website and um, I had to ask if I was allowed to do it. I mm-hmm. swear to God, this is true. I was in a meeting and they, we, we were, all, I was at a website and we were owned by this big, ugly corporation and um I'm like, can I do this? And I was like, well, we got to talk to the legal team. And of course, the legal team said no. And I was like, local, like, but IO9 is doing it. <laughs> and they're like, well, all that right. Was, that was partly thanks to Gawker Media. Which <laughs> I was going to say, look and they, they got them. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, that wasn't because of YouTube videos. I know, but, but look at that cavalier attitude. Oh, man. But that was but, part of what allowed IO9 to exist, you know, right. was that they were like, yeah, try what you want, you know, like break some boundaries, yes. break the rules. And then ultimately it was no, if somebody looked at the hood and said yes you can do this and it was it was a great art it was a, it was the class i distinctly remember the meeting i'll tell you what, it was the classic io9 article it was a it was a list because you're at lunch and you want something fun to read yeah in between the heavily researched and reported brilliant journalism that was happening at io9 yes, of course you also want a list and it was auto-destruct sequences on various spaceships throughout sci-fi <laughs> nice. and all it was, was like 10 Nine. <laughs> and it was all these videos from all these old science yeah. fiction movies and Star Trek 3. Mm-hmm. Get off the ship! <laughs> um, and I'm like, this is great. I'm like, I'm clicking every one. And yeah. you probably wrote it. You or Charlie wrote it for sure. I think I probably mean, Charlie wrote that one. Yeah. She was like the master of it. We call, we had a daily one. We called it the Super List, yeah. um, which is actually an idea I ripped off from the San Francisco Bay Guardian, which there was you one go. of my first employers. And they used to have Super Lists. Uh-huh. And then when they sadly went under, I was like, well, we're going to revive the Super <laughs> List. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so we would do And it was like, those were really fun. Like, of course people they were. make yeah. fun of listy crap on the internet but sometimes no. it can be done really well and, yeah. and you know like what the hell's wrong with once a day having some candy you know like have 10 candies have 10 pieces of 
down uh, descending time of whatever the <laughs> self-destruct hell self-destructive self-destruct and it's such a great trope in sci-fi of course, like that's what yeah. I love is like just put together like a bunch of tropes yeah. and you know people and I clicked everyone and I went to my excited. boss I'm like why the F can't I do well you gotta talk to legal and then Legal's like no and I did. I was like I, was, I stamped my foot I'm like why it's the fair F are use. They and they're like alright they're like all right, we'll check. We'll check, and then they're like, "All right, you can do it." Good, yeah. Shut up, because that is like legit fair use. Of course, use. it was. I mean, and also, and it's for, for the purpose of commentary. It was. It totally was. Absolutely. They just didn't want. They, 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 that's why that. It's hard fun. to be old media. It you is. Know? It's, it is. It's hard. We should have sympathy. We do. We do. Like, like, like for the AI. So again, Annalee, thank you for coming on Thanks the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, next time uh, I'm on the West Coast, I'll you know I'd be thrilled to be on your show, and I'll say you want to talk about Westworld, and I'll be like, wait, wait, I'm three episodes. <laughs> behind let's not talk about it but again so people um, uh, uh, please uh, read Ars Technica uh, daily and, uh, and we'll take it from there This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.